0: That's always the hardest part, is breaking up the fun. So it's obviously uh, a great joy to hear you fellowshiping together. Uh, you'll notice that I'm not Joe Pemberthy. Um, I am as tall as Joe Pemberthy, but I'm not Joe. You can pray. Joe is um, actually away on a planned trip with his son. And uh, so uh, I get the joy of filling the pulpit this morning And the way I'd like to start today is by asking you to grab your Bibles and open with me to 1 John. 1 John. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in this little uh, epistle. And I want to take you to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, you're going to look at those first three verses. We're going to touch on some other places in the scripture this morning, but we'll start here in 1 John 3 Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, in March of 2018, police responded to a frantic 911 call from a home in Tampa, Florida. One of the first responders on the scene was Detective Mike Blair. Detective Blair had been on hundreds of calls during his career. But this one, he said, changed his life. While many details of that night are grim, in an interview with Fox 4 News in Tampa, Mike Blair recalled, by the time I arrived that night, we were told there was a child being medevaced to Tampa General, but he was not expected to live. That child was little Ronnie uh, Ronnie Barron, who was seven years old. Sadly, he would lose his mom and his sister that night from an attack by his mom's boyfriend, but Ronnie would eventually survive and recover. During his recovery at the hospital, Detective Blair would visit Ronnie and would bring him gifts from, Tampa, from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the nearby football team. And one night as Blair was leaving the hospital, Ronnie reached out to the detective with a simple request that touched the big man's heart. Detective Blair said this. He he kind of held on to my hand as I left. And he said, "Could, could you watch a movie with me? At that moment, the deputy knew he had to call his wife. He says, we were planning to go on a date that night. And I said, hey, instead of doing date night, do you mind if we watch a movie with this kid? They ended up ditching their date night, and Blair's wife came to the hospital to join him. Remembering that night, she said, I had already known that I would want to take Ronnie home with us starting that night, Daniel Blair said. Sorry, Danielle Blair. Though it took some time, and even nudging by his wife and family, it was Detective Blair's desire to adopt little Ronnie. That's when he got a phone call from Ronnie's guardian. He says, when I got the phone call, I was driving, and I was driving by our church, and the guardian was asking, do you know somebody who can help us out? His wife said she had prayed for that moment, that God would soften her husband's heart to take this little boy into their home. And really, the rest of the article reads like a movie. It says this, now Ronnie has a new home. Five new siblings that have accepted, accepted him into their lives and new loving parents who have formally adopted him. Ronnie, of that new family, says they are really nice people. They are the best moms and dads, and they really take care of me. There is no one else better than them. Detective Blair says that they've adopted a family mantra that Ronnie repeats to himself in times of stress. It goes, I am safe. I am loved, and I'm part of this family. And I say, wow, aren't those stories so powerful? Aren't they wonderful to even hear of an adoption like that, where a detective on a call ends up adopting a young boy who he cared for in the hospital And I believe, truly, that part of the reason why adoption stories like this impact us the way they do is that they are a real-life reflection of the reality of our spiritual adoption into the family of God. They not only show us the extent of human love, but they are a small window into the love that God has for those whom he calls his own children if you're a child of God this morning, if you have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then I want to remind you today that you are a child of God. Specifically, you are an adopted child of God. And your adoption is nothing short of a miracle. It's nothing short of a marvel. It should captivate our hearts and our minds regularly and cause us to worship God, our Father. But even while I say that, I recognize that many of us don't think about this very often. The so-called doctrine of adoption is not often on our hearts and minds, and I realized this in my own heart as I was sitting down in Los Angeles just about a month ago at at a conference on the Puritans. And the guy got up to preach, and he began to unpack the doctrine of adoption that the Puritans hundreds of years ago understood. And I realized, my goodness, that is wonderful. I needed this, and my church needs to hear this too. And so that's essentially what caused me this morning to want to take us to 1 John chapter 3. Because the benefits of our spiritual adoption are just that. They're amazing. The Lord's work in adopting you and I is incredible, incredible, and it should cause us to worship. It should, it should cause us to have a sense of, of awe this morning. And so I want to dive into this, this great doctrine of our faith. But as I do, let me read to you the words of J.I. Packer. Many of you, I'm sure in this room, have read his incredible, incredibly helpful book, Knowing God. If you haven't, go buy a copy. J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Later in the book, he unpacks the reality of adoption, and he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. He concludes this, By saying this, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Whoa. (laughs) Be good for us to understand this doctrine, if J.I. Packer is right, to get our arms around this doctrine, and we need to do that by looking to Scripture. So here's my big thought for the morning. If you take one thing away from this morning, I'd like you to take this. And here it is, it should come up on screen. Let your adoption into the family of God be the controlling thought for every relationship in your life. Let your adoption into the family of God be the controlling thought for every relationship in your life. What I want to do is look at five relationships that the doctrine of adoption impacts in our lives. Five different relationships. Maybe they'll all come up on screen. I'll give them to you right now. These are relationships that are transformed. They're changed in light of our adoption. The first one is our relationship to God. Then our relationship to the world. Our relationship to the future. Our relationship to ourselves. And our relationship to the family of God the church. And I do want to give credit where credit's due, even though I think uh, copyright laws don't read back this far. I'm greatly helped by the Puritans, specifically those in the 1500s and 1600s, and John Cotton especially on this doctrine. So I do want to, uh, my outline, I've stolen from him. So there you go. But first, First, let's look at this first one, our relationship to God changes. Look down with me in the scripture at verse 1. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. One of the first relationships to change in in light of our adoption is our relationship with God. And some writers have called this verse John's apostolic burst of praise. It's because there's a real sense in the language, in this sentence, that John is just exploding, almost like he can't contain himself. Some translations, maybe you're holding one this morning, starts, uh, translates that word see as behold. As, as behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. John here bursts out and interrupts an argument he's already making at the end of chapter 2 and in the rest of chapter 3. And in, in fact, the, the, these three verses here in 1 John 3 are kind of parenthetical. And I want you to go back and just look up, in, in, starting in verse 28. Let's, let's see what his argument that he was making. He says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we have, may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God, uh, born of him. I remember translating this text. It was one of our assignments when we took Greek class uh, in college. And over and over in 1 John, you have that word abide, abide. Abide means to remain. It's the idea of keep on believing, remain, keep on believing, I'm a long-time Dodger fan. They used to put that song by Journey, Don't Stop Believing." You know, later during the game when the Dodgers were down. That's what I think of. But don't stop believing. Remain. Keep trusting the word of Christ. Keep believing what he said, says John. And it also carries this idea of obedience, as in keep on obeying. He's... He's reminding these young Christians to abide or remain in Christ. Why? Because he's coming soon. They they don't want to have shame at the return of Christ. They they want to have confidence and, and be unashamed when he comes. But how will they do that? By remaining in Christ. And In verse 29, he says it clearly, by doing what Christ commands or practicing righteousness. And those who do what is right, who obey Christ, John says those, those are ones that are born of God. And you recognize that. To be born of God is to be what? His child. It's just simply to be his child. How do I know that? Well, it's the plain reading of the text. If we're born of someone, we are their child. And that's the language that John will use throughout chapter 3. And he'll even compare the children of God, those who are born of God, with those who are children of the devil. Look down in verses nine and 10 of chapter three. He says simply, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides, as that word again, in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Right, sounds a lot like what he was saying in 29. But go on, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, so he's making this argument in the end of chapter 2 and through chapter three, chapter 3 that those who are the children of God, those who are born of God, are those whose lives are righteous, who practice righteousness, who keep on obeying this Being born of God was the same conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, right? What's sometimes called the Nick at Night scene in the scripture in John 3. Jesus answered in John 3, 5, and 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. To be born again it's to be born of God, to be born of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit will not continue in a pattern of sin for long. They're going to practice righteousness. But John, in First John, this is the argument that he's making. And he comes in and he interrupts that, that, that flow. It's like the dad who, who's driving on the mountain road and he sees Mount Rainier and he's like, we got to pull off. We we gotta go to this this Kodak spot here and pull off and take in the view. That's what John's doing here. And and he, he comes in verse one, he bursts out and he says, look, see, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Spurgeon said that John's use of the word see here is a word of wonder. John wants us to stop and take in the wonder of the greatness of the Father's love. But what kind of love is it, John? It's not a general kind of love. It's a very specific kind of love. And you have to, to catch this. It's a, an ex, a specific expression of the love of God. And he says it there at the end of the, of the sentence. It is this, that we should be called the children of God. In effect, he's just saying, in his love, in God's love, he's called us his children. And for John, there's a clear sense of awe. He's saying, look, kids, do you see it? Look at how incredible it is. Now, you might be thinking, all right, sounds good. What's so great about that? I'm God's child. I think I've heard that before. Why so much wonder? Why so much beholding? I think this is where we need to get down into the specifics of what it means to be a child of God. How exactly did you become a child of God? How did that relationship change? How did it happen? Well, first, let me just say it this way. You weren't born that way. You weren't born that a child of God. Oh yes, God made all people, but not all are called his child. How do I know this? Well, turn left in your Bible to the gospel of John, to the gospel of John. Real quick, John begins his gospel by addressing this very issue. Some have called this the best commentary on what it means to be a child of God, these few verses. I remember just a few years ago, uh, being uh, memorizing this verse um, using the little app, Fighter Verses. It's one of the first ones you memorize. It says this in John, the Gospel of John, uh, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love when the Bible's its own commentary. <laughs> now, you see, you didn't become a child of God because you were so special. You don't become a child of God because you were born into a, a specific family. You didn't become a child of God because you got baptized. You, you didn't become a child of God because you have an unbelievable prayer life. You become a, a child of God, according to John, by God's choice and God's choice alone. He said it there, he gave the right to become children of God. Yes, you believed on him by faith, but as we see in Ephesians 2, even that faith is a gift. So going back to 1 John, John says the very same thing. See what love the Father, here it is, has given to us. It is a love that is given to us. It's not deserved, it's not earned, it's not manufactured by you and me. It is given by God. It is brought about through the work of Christ on the cross. And this brings us full circle into the doctrine of adoption. Because while we don't see the word adoption in this text specifically, this is what John is addressing here. We become God's children by his choice, by his adoption of us. The wonder that John has regarding the love of the Father as shown in being a a child is because it's an immense privilege. It's an immense privilege because it means that God himself has chosen me, has chosen you, if if you've put your faith in Christ, to be in his family. This is a relationship. And I had gone to lunch just this, this week with a farmer friend of mine who was visiting, and he said, Shay, relationships are everything. He was talking about business, and I'm talking about spiritual business. This is everything, or rather, listen, it changes everything. We're back to our first point. In adoption, our relationship with God changes. You say, how does this change? Well, first of all, he becomes our father. He becomes our father. This isn't just any relationship. This is a a family relationship. This is wild. We're God's children because he loves and makes us his children. And when we become his children, we get him as father. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8.15, you don't have to turn there. It should come up. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the word for father in Aramaic. It'd be used by children and adults alike for their own father. It's the same word that Jesus used, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was God's son. But we are his adopted sons and daughters. And still, check this out, we gain the same privileges because of our adoption as Christ. We can call him Father. We can call him our Father. Just this week, I was with my kids, and we were doing Bible time. We started a a new study through Genesis, uh, and and I felt like my own daughter understood this better than me. She's seven. Her name's Karis. Karis. And, and we were—we were, we were actually—I we were, was actually asking them a, a, a serious question. We were talking about how to prepare for death. I think we were talking about Genesis six and Enoch, and and all those people died except Enoch was taken. And and I asked my kids, "What is the best way to prepare for death?" And one of my kids rightfully said, "Well, you got to put your faith and trust in Christ." I said, "Yeah, that's right. Good job. My work is done." <laughs> And then Karis, she said something like this. She said, Yeah, because then God will take you to his home. He'll take you to where he lives because we're still his children, but one day we will be with him. She just unpacked very simply the doctrine of adoption. She's right. One day we will be with him in his house. And she didn't have the audio adrenaline song. It's a big, big house. She didn't have that. She just had good biblical theology. Right? And we will be with him. Listen, listen. We will be with him one day, not because we're so good at loving him and we're so confident in our reciprocation of our love to God. Right? No, we will be with him because of his adoptive love for us, his adoption of us as his own. And we know this, right, because we fail often, don't we? John Cotton, the Puritan, he understood this. He said, surely I'm not a child of God because I find much pride in my heart. Surely if, he goes, and much rebellion and corruption in my spirit. Surely if I were born of Christ, I should be like him. But what does St. John say here? We are the sons of God even now, though there is much unbelief in our hearts and much weakness and many corruptions within us. Wow. This is why some theologians have identified our adoption as the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even, listen, than justification. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Shea, stop. That's heretical. Surely, we just celebrated the Reformation 500 years ago. Wasn't it Martin Luther himself that said that the doctrine of justification was the one that brought him to his knees on which he said he came to faith He said this, Martin Luther, justification is the master and prince, the lord and ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. The doctrine of justification, listen, is that very doctrine on which wicked sinners are declared righteous by a holy God because, listen, the work of Christ on their behalf, rather than stand guilty before him, our penalty is paid by the death of Christ and Christ's life is credited to our account and we are seen by God as he sees Christ. So yes, Luther was right to emphasize the doctrine of justification. A declaration of righteousness. And other doctrines do rest on it. So then how and why is adoption so great? How is it this higher blessing? Again, I I have to quote J.I. Packer. He makes the distinction. He says this, justification is the primary, listen, and fundamental blessing of the gospel. He writes, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. You and I, if we're apart from Christ, we need forgiveness. We do, don't we? We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous before a holy God. The scripture is so clear about this. We can't do it. But of course, we understand that the penalty for our sin is death. Right? That's that's the, the payment for our sin. But then comes Christ, who pays the penalty. He sacrifices himself as a substitute, as the object of God's wrath against all those who have violated the law of God, which would be every single person in this room. We need justification because our primary problem is that we can't be made right apart from Christ. But listen, even if we just had justification, we'd rejoice, wouldn't we? Praise the Lord. I'm not dead in my sin. Christ paid the penalty. So how is it that that adoption could be this higher blessing, Packer? Well, thankfully, he answered that question. (laughs) He says this adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God, the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close relationship with God resulting. He finishes by saying this adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes his children and heirs. Here's the difference. The difference between justification and adoption is the difference between God as judge and God as father. In this case, justification would be like God the judge sitting in his chamber and pounding the gavel and saying, you are declared righteous. But adoption would look like this. You're declared righteous. He puts down his gavel. He comes out of his chamber, and he puts his arm around you, and he says, listen, I'm actually adopting you into my family. I'm taking you in as one of my own. I'm I'm bringing you into my home. And you will have all the blessings of being a part of my family and all the joy of being in my family and all the inheritance that comes with being part of my family. And maybe just maybe we're starting to get a glimpse of why John would burst out in chapter 3 and want us to take a look and wonder at this relationship. The judge becomes the father. says, I'm adopting you today. And so adoption, in that sense, changes our relationship to God. Changes our relationship to God. And as I said at the very beginning, let your adoption into the family of God be the controlling thought of every relationship in your life. Secondly, let's look at our relationship to the world. Our relationship to the world changes. He says it at the end of verse 1. He says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. John here addresses our relationship to the world. That is the unbelieving world. The world are those who have not put their faith in Christ. He, he speaks of them as children of the devil in, in verse 10. They are opposed to God, and listen, and opposed to those who believe in his son. That's the world. That's what he's defining here. And what John wants to do is he wants to comfort. He wants to comfort these, these people, this church. He says, listen, you might be distressed at the thought that the world doesn't know you. He says, in effect, hey, don't be upset at this. There's a reason for it. What's the reason? Well, John said that the world doesn't know God. Right? You'll remember back in the gospel of John, said this about Christ. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Listen, church, you want to know why the world hates you? You want to know why the world rejects Christians? One reason is that we are his children and they are not. We are his adopted children. This is confusing. This is a mystery to the world. And that's why your relationship with the world has changed. Because God's changed your relationship to himself. Your relationship to God Church, you've been hearing this in 1 Peter, may bring you scorn. It may bring you ridicule. It it may bring misunderstandings about the way that you raise your family or the schools that you choose or not to choose to send your kids or the job that you choose to take or not to take. And it may bring laughter and hatred from the world. But John's saying to you this morning, don't worry, that's normal. If they don't know Jesus, they won't know you. Or said relationally, if they don't know your elder brother, Jesus Christ, they won't know you. If they don't know your father, they're not going to know you. Your relationship to the world has changed. And I just want to add this to this element here. This is yet another evidence of your adoption. You want to know if you're an adopted child of God? Ask that question. Does the world reject you? Does the world ridicule you? ridicule you, then you're probably his adopted child. And as much as we don't want the scorn and ridicule of this world, we praise the Lord for that evidence in our life. Listen, the world's not going to know you. Fine. They didn't know Jesus either, but God knows you. He adopted you. So our relationship to God changes, our relationship to the world changes. Thirdly, very briefly here, our relationship to the future changes. Our relationship to the future changes. Look down at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, uh, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We could spend an entire sermon just on this one verse, and many have. There's so much to unpack, but I want to emphasize what John emphasizes. You notice right away, he re-emphasizes our adoption. He says, we are God's children now. This is not a future reality, but a present one, says John. Right? The one that he wanted us to see in verse 1, to be be exhorted to see. And he says, but this reality stands in contrast to what it will be like in the future. What's the future? He says, the future is not known. What we will be, he says, has not yet appeared. He's not saying that you're a child now and less a child later. That's not his point. What he is saying is that our future is, what our future is like cannot be fully comprehended right now. He says there's some mystery. It hasn't been revealed except for this one thing. It says there in verse 2, when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Martin Lloyd Jones said nothing more sublime has ever been written. (laughs) Why? Because John is talking about future glorification. He's talking about a future reality that when we come into the presence of Christ, when we behold him as he is, that's the day that our struggle to be like Christ will be made complete. That's what John says at the end of verse 2. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like Christ, church. We will be like Christ, the holy and righteous one. It's the culmination of the process that we call sanctification. This process where God is working in you and me right now, the conformity to his son, to be conformed to the image of God, the image of god's son is just a it's a process that every day you and i we battle and john says one day you will look like christ completely that process will finish it will come to its end you will be completely holy we will be completely righteous oh how we should pray for that day to come soon one day we're going to look like the family We're going to look like our brother, Christ. And I love that verse because so often, pastorally, I just want to tell people, listen, you need some hope right now? This will be over soon. Christ is coming. You will be made like him. All the pain you've endured will be finished. All your wrestle with sin and temptation will be over. And this promise, listen, church, is for his adopted children. Let your adoption into the family of God be the controlling thought of every relationship in your life, especially your relationship to the future. Fourthly, I've got to th- try to finish here. Our relationship to ourselves changes. Our relationship to ourselves, look at verse three. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse three is John pulling back on the road after looking at the wonders of adoption. And this ends his parenthetical statement. And it's tied to what John just said about the future. In a sense, he's saying, listen, if we hope for the day, he says, I know we do, but if if I hope for the day that we will be like Christ, then surely the expression of that hope of one day being fully like Christ is found in making efforts every day to look like him now. Those who hope for future purity will work for present purity. Those who hope for future purity will work for f- present purity. We obviously don't stay the way we are. That's why our relationship to ourselves changes We become something different. We become every day more and more like Christ. John Cotton again said it this way purifying ourselves involves the whole man, including what we do with our minds, our affections, our will, our thoughts, our tongues, our eyes, our hands, our disappointments, our injuries, and our enemies. I think he covered it all. (laughs) It's funny how we'll talk this way in other areas of our life, like we'll use family dynamics like with my kids, and maybe you've grew up, you heard something like this in your home. I know I've said something like this, right? You'll hear something about, about the way another family handled something. You go, uh-uh. You're a Thomason. That's not how the Thomasons respond. They bear the family name, or most often in our home, that may be how the Pemberthy's, no, I'm just joking. I- <laughs> All we're saying is that our family doesn't look like that. On my son's baseball team a number of years ago, I, this is out of my notes now, so that's scary. <laughs> the kids would get up to bat, right? And they'd swing it like some pitch that went over the, you know, <laughs> they, over the umpire's head. And the, sure enough, on the dugout, well, that's not you. That's not you. What are you swinging at, pal? <laughs> right? That's not your identity. That's not who you are. And relationally, it's a family dynamic. Right, it's If you have the family name, if you're a child of God, an adopted child, and your hope is found in the future of being like Christ, then your present reality is one where you're constantly desirous to obey and to become more holy. John will say that it's evidence of your adoption in verse 10. I do have time to unpack that. Let's go fifthly. Let's go fifthly and finally, our relationship to the family of God changes. Look down at verse 10. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Jump down to verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is You've been adopted into God's family. We have God as our father, Christ as our brother, but our adoption is not the only adoption. It's true of every person who's called upon Christ for salvation. We now have been adopted into a family. That is the family of all who've come to Christ. And listen, one relationship that's changed in light of our adoption into this family is our love for each other is incredibly, greatly impacted. One pastor said it like this, those who have experienced much love from him cannot help but love others. The adopted family of God is the church. It's expressed locally here as Redemption Hill Bible Church. Obviously, we know capital C, there's the global church. It's the people, though, that are sitting next to you that know Christ. Those he's he's adopted into his family. John Cotton put it simply, the sons of God ought to be the men of our love and delight. We are to love fellow adoptees of God. In the same way that John in verse 16 says that Christ lays down his life, We are to lay down our lives for each other. And let me just ask you this, church, what kind of church would Redemption Hill Bible Church be if we were loving each other like that? What kind of church would you be? What kind of witness would we have? Jesus was willing to die for the church. Are you? Am I? Jesus was willing to lay down his life for you. Are you willing to lay down your life for those around you in whom the Lord has called into community through adoption? Or do you feel like the little girl who wrote a letter to God? Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Listen, your love is an evidence of your adoption. It's an expression of God's love in adopting you, and we reflect that love in our love for each other. I praise the Lord, truly, church. I praise the Lord that I see this kind of love in you on a regular basis. I see you enjoying fellowship time, not only on Sunday, but outside of Sunday mornings. You do love each other. Excel still more. So listen, all this to say our relationship to God changes in light of our adoption. In light of our adoption, our relationship to the world changes. Our relationship to the future. Our relationship to ourselves. Our relationship to the family of God, the church. Let your adoption into the family of God be the controlling thought of every relationship in your life. Let me pray. God, I hope and pray that this reality of our adoption at least whets the appetite of our church. Lord, that it would point us back to you as our father and our elder brother, Christ, who paid the penalty that we couldn't endure to not only justify us, but to adopt us into your family. God, what great love you have. Lord, let that be our prayer this week, that we reflect upon your love as seen in the fact that we are now called children. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for our adoption, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.